Alright, so we are doing a test run on what I am calling right now the Black and Green Podcast. I am Kevin Tucker, and I am your host. Uh, so, uh, the name might change in time. Uh, Black and Green tends to be the default for all these projects, uh, and that includes Black and Green Press, Black and Green Review, uh, a number of other things that just go under the name Black and Green. Uh, it could be Species Trader, Primal War, I don't know, Peak Civ. There's projects I do. There's names I give them. Names can work. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm skipping music for better or for worse for some people. I understand that while I hate civilization and people are interested in that, they might not share my preference for death metal. So uh, if somebody wants to come up with a theme or something like that, uh, the more ridiculous it is, the more inclined I would be to use it. So you can send that in any questions, comments, or anything to black and green press at gmail.com all right so I believe that tomorrow today is February 14th I believe that tomorrow my new book gathered remains should be back from the printer uh, a little bit of a delay it was supposed to be in today but I am very excited about it and I have the pre-orders and everything available at black and green review.org which by the way the websites there's black and green press.org blackandgreenreview.org and kevintucker.org. Uh, Kevin Tucker is site is uh, my projects, things like that. Black and Green Press is not updated as often as it should be, but it's a general kind of press stuff. Uh, Black and Green Review is for our now annual journal, uh, obviously and cleverly named Black and Green Review. Um, but that's also the one that's got the website or the web store and everything like that on it. So uh, it gets a little confusing, I'm sure, at times because there are multiple websites and because I'm generally pretty awful about updating them. But uh, the purchases and everything like that go through the review site. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, all the pre-orders, if anything else, anything else I mentioned is going to be up at blackandgreenreview.org. All right, so Gathered Remains, uh, if you were curious about it, is the book of essays I've been wrecking myself over the past couple of years so most of the stuff has been in black and green review uh, one essay was in earth first journal uh, a couple on some web only stuff and then uh, yeah so I'll just go through the contents here uh, the book is 344 pages uh, has art by the amazing Mazatol uh, and I might be butchering the pronunciation of his name so I sincerely apologize and I should probably learn that. Um, but uh, this website is, uh, I believe, Graphica Mazatal, M-A-Z-A-T-L.com. So G-R-A-F-I-C-A-M-A-Z-A-T-L.com. Uh, and his art is some of the best of anything I've seen in the anarchist movement at all. Uh, and he's got some stuff up for sale from time to time, a lot of relief prints and stuff like that, and they're very awesome. Uh, but I'm very honored to have that art on the book, and I think it really kind of ties the entire thing together really well. So that's an honor for me. Uh, it has a preface from John Zerzum. I'm, that is, uh, again, an honor. Uh, the essays are Gathered Remains, uh, com uh, I Am Complicit, Suffocating Void on uh, social media, social networking. Hooked on a feeling. 
which is all about uh, community building and healing and then the connection between addiction and domestication. Society Without Strangers, uh, which is one about violence, the nature of violence, how violence is changed by domesticated societies and how relationship to violence changes. To Speak of Wildness, which is uh, really about kind of the, the terms wildness and the concepts of wildness versus wilderness. Uh, yeah, Subjects Object is kind of a shorter one, uh, kind of following a strand that we have going in Black and Green Review and in general to kind of reconcile and deal with some of the different views within anarcho-primitivism about the nature of symbolic thought and symbolic culture uh, and particular language. Uh, something that I'm sure will be a common theme on this. Uh, how do humans deserve to survive? Which is a blog post. Ecology of, of a bubble, which was uh, about fracking and the fracking bubble. Peak oil, everything along with it. Means and ends, kind of going to be a recurring theme, talking about the importance of nomadism and what it means to be nomadic and what that means in terms of resilience on the whole and how it is that being resilient, being uh, able to adapt has made it possible for us to get to where we are for better or for worse in terms of human society, but it's gotten us through a lot as hunter-gatherers. Unfortunately, it permits a lot to happen that just shouldn't in terms of how we're able to continue existing with civilization and the things we're capable of doing with the, to the world. Uh, so that's kind of a recurring theme here. Uh, and as a good start is a piece I did for Earth First Journal about activism, uh, fracking, and what it means to be at a energy frontier. So a lot has to do with being in Pennsylvania and having seen the fracking boom go uh, full on much further than it should have. And then uh, what, what it looks like to see an energy bubble in a very short period. And of course with the extremely caustic ecological con uh consequences here and then it ends with a um, interview that I did with this going down off the top of my head I'm blanking as to when but I think it was maybe it was 2016 it could have been early 2017 I could be totally wrong about that but um, went through a couple interviews I had done and decided on that one so there you have it I'm very proud of it and I'm giving you a very basic overview uh, and yeah, so I hope that you're interested. If you have questions about it, and you're interested in it, that you pick it up, read it, help me spread the word. And uh, there are plenty more which I will get back to. So, uh, outside of that, Black and Green Review number five just came out um, a couple of weeks ago at this point. It's a pretty fat issue, 290 pages, and I keep saying with issues that I'm stoked and I'm not sure how we're going to top it kind of continuing that on but I think we did a good job of course I am not neutral on the matter but uh, you can decide for yourself blackandgreenview.org we got it so let's do a quick run through of the contents um, so I will note that this issue uh, it was almost exactly a year between number four and number five and we started out as a biannual journal uh, the first issue being in the spring of 2015. Uh, it was like 136 pages or something like that. Uh, about six months later, we put out the second issue, same size. 
about seven months later, so we put out the third issue, which was almost double in size, 218 pages, I think. And then four, same size as number three, but took about seven or eight months. So just kind of pushing back a little bit further and further. Uh, and if you have followed some of the stuff I've done, which includes Species Trader or anything like that, uh, deadlines and I don't always get along. So... Well, that might drive other people, especially in the collective crazy, I think comes with the process. The idea is that there's a black and green review is we, we've never done a theme um, and both Green Anarchy and Species Trader, which were you know kind of the forebears of black and green review, had done plenty of theme issues and things like that and trying to keep along specific themes. We have not done that. I don't see us doing that. I could be wrong down the line. Maybe we'll change our minds. But more or less, the basic idea is that the complete aspect of Black and Green Review is having these four different sections. And that's the essay section, uh, which are, you know, essays longer than more intent to stand alone and really kind of definitively advocate or push on a position. Uh, discussion, which can be more open-ended. We get a lot of interviews in that section. Uh, it's been kind of the case to, to try and keep things going. Um, and I, I, I do want to say that the, the discussion section in particular, while it's not always the biggest section of the journal, is kind of a really important or, you know, uh, encapsulation of what I think Black and Green Review is. And, and I think in the history of anarchism to say in a small amount of time that one section of anarchism, namely Green anarchy or anarcho primitivism, whatever you want to call it, anti civilization anarchism. Um, the amount of ground that we've covered in terms of filling in gaps and things like that in in one journal and really trying to push it through and really feeding off each other pretty aggressively at times. Uh, I'm really proud of where we where we've gone, and a lot of stuff has ended up in the essay section that starts out in the discussion section. Uh, and then bleeds into some of the other sections. So that also includes field notes from the Primal War, um, which instead of just having kind of action updates and things like that, which a, a lot of journals have done in the past and continue to do to a certain degree with Earth First Journal, um, this gives us kind of more of a chance to take specific actions in particular. So in every issue, we've got what we call a true crime case file to look at a particular act of sabotage or of resistance of some sort and then really actually be able to look at it in more depth than just kind of saying these things happened at this time or whatever uh, again another section that tends to get a lot of interviews and some of the best interviews that i think we've done have been in the prime war sections as well which is not to slight any of the other interviews we've done but you know as a person who wants to see civilization no longer existing the prime war section means quite a lot to me and then the reviews section uh, and as has happened before, definitely happens here. There are times where the reviews can themselves be considered candidates for essay sections. Uh, they're pretty long. We end with one from Storyteller here. Uh, another excellent one. Storyteller had a great piece in number three as well uh, called Technique and Obsolescence, which I'm really stoked on. And we're going to be hearing a lot more from Storyteller. So I'm excited about that. So I'll give a run through the contents, and I will say as well that uh, there's a tendency when people see Black Mirror Interview and they see anything that's got a number on it to kind of think, you know, the newest one is 
most current and that one is going to be the most relevant. The way that the journal works, we made it more intentionally not anything to do with uh, standard kind of journal magazine fare. So it's not something that dates really at all um, until, you know, of course, time ends and civilizations collapse. But uh, we we want to make sure that this is something that's going to be around. And that's why we stick with a book format. That's why we, you know, don't just do print on demand and things like that. We want to make sure that the content and the format match each other really well and that they are something to be taken seriously and actually held in your hand and read and not just something to be read online. So very explicitly not content ironic to be talking about on a podcast, which of course is content. Um, but you know, what do you do? So, all right. The contents of number five, uh, I wrote the opening editorial. You're welcome. Then John has a short piece, Tweedledum or Tweedledee, um, kind of a quick piece overviewing where the anarchist scene is at uh, and where it is in relation to Black and Green Review. Got a lot of essays from John this issue. That is John Zerzan. If you're not familiar, I'm going to call him John quite often. So that's generally who I'm referring to. All right. Uh, so we got Death from John Zerzan, uh, Gathered Remains, which is also the uh, title essay in my new collection. So we get a little bit of overlap there. Uh, Night from John, Hope and Wildness from Four-Legged Human. So this is really cool. And uh, one of the best things I think about Black and Green Review has been Four-Legged Human's work. Uh, there's a lot more where that's coming from, but this one is a little bit different. Uh, it's a story based on uh, a fictionalization of actual events that are pretty awesome. And the center of it being a uh, four-legged human being involved with uh, an Arctic hunter-gatherer community and stretching out moose skins and, and fleshing moose skins and really kind of working actively with his society to bring back... Uh, ancestral ways and try and bring back the communal element of something like stretching a hide if you've never done it if you've never really fleshed a hide um, you know a lot of smaller animals they take a lot of work uh, larger animals take a lot of a lot of work and the way that these things don't become work is that you do them with a group of people and you make an activity out of it and there's um, you know a particular stretching hides uh, which is kind of a common theme throughout that as well and showing pictures from the stretching of this moose hide that's being discussed uh, show kind of like launching kids in there and you use it as like a make like a trampoline of it. It's pretty much the most entertaining way that you can stretch out a hide uh, compared to tying it up onto a, uh, a rectangle of posts and tying all the ends and you cut holes in it and you tie it through. One of the worst parts about uh, tanning in my opinion sucks to do but um you know you can sit there and push on it with a, a hard scraper or a hard stick or something like that something of that sort even a really dull shovel uh for a long time to stretch it out uh, and then you know it'll take a long time or you know toss kids with it like a trampoline as always with hunter-gatherer life or with indigenous life the funner thing is going to be the thing that wins and the thing that builds community and the thing that helps ease tension and shows that life can be enjoyed. I know it's a very philosophical concept for all of us living within civilization, but that's just the reality of it. So 
pretty awesome story. Uh, pretty awesome. Very awesome. Obviously, I'm a fan of it. Uh, and I hope you will be as well. But all the things that are mentioned there, or the, the basic gist of the story and everything, is all very influencing things that happen. And, uh, you know, a good reminder that we're not all just a bunch of first world people who have no skills and knowledge and community here having these discussions about what's actually happening in the world and talking about everything as a philosophical kind of abstract or a construct or just that these are all ideas. These are actual things. And there are many parts of the world, many places in the world where they're much closer to it than we are, uh, even though, you know, it's, it's within all of us. But as a community, as a society, these things are, are much closer. Uh, and, you know, when people talk about the collapse, people talk about things that can happen. It often gets talked about as though, you know, it's going to be rich first world people that are going to have power and control, which to me is just insane. And in no scenario of collapse of civilization's past has that really ever been the case. Uh, all of our ideas about power, all of our ideas about wealth, all of our ideas about control are 100% tied to the reality that we're currently in, which is that money equals power, owning land equals power, owning the means of production, things like that, all equal power. The second that entire system is uh, debilitated, uh, whether endemically or just hugely, um, all elements of wealth go with it. Uh, it's not like we're dealing with, you know, strong men who are ruled by force in terms of, uh, you know, rich douchebags. But uh, they have no survival skills. Um and we, we tend to look at a lot of things about uh, life outside of civilization in terms of survival, in terms of things like, of you know, just kind of this new uh, tooth and nail kind of survival and existence. And that's, that's, again, one of the points that we try to get on and that a lot of people got on. It's kind of a common theme throughout a lot of uh, ecological awareness and biocentrism and things like that as well, is that, you know, we're better off without civilization. We've been better off without civilization. It's not just about meeting all your needs, but living a life that's actually worth living. And considering that all of us are uh, selling our labor for for money and then trading that money for you know whatever sustenance we can get for a month at a time or a couple of weeks at a time or a week or a couple of days at a time, we're we're really just surviving. And the the skill that that we're carrying on there is the ability to just make it work. Uh, and that's kind of going back to the resiliency. That's going back to the adaptations that a nomadic hunter gather would have, uh, in terms of how they interact with the world and just being able to make things work. Uh, and of course, when you bring that to community level and you actually have the skills and the ability to sustain yourself, that's where you get community from. That's where you can get life from. That's where you can get things that are good and not just this, you know, collection of, panning for shit in polluted waters. So, uh, roundabout way, just saying that I think that we have a lot that we need to remind ourselves of, and we need to remind ourselves as well that, that a lot of people who are resisting, the reason that the resistance takes the form that it does, or the reason that the lost community can be felt as much as it is, is because these aren't abstracts, these aren't ideas that a lot of people have. These are just the way that they're living. This is everything that they know. This is their culture. Uh, and there's more to it than just 
making some money and getting your next month's rent or buying your groceries or things like that. Life can be joyful. I know that's a very radical idea. I know that that's potentially going to be considered moralistic or whatever kind of bullshit somebody on the internet is going to throw at it. Don't care. Just the way it is. Sorry. Uh, but, you know, that's important. And I think that the people who would defend against that, you well, know, I got more questions for them, but I, I just don't really have time for it. So uh, we'll go on with it. Uh, another essay from John on the weavers or on weavers and people, uh, the craft of weaving. We got another skill that we can talk about as far as it can take a lot of time, but it obviously can bring people joy in our form. Uh, and then the historical shift. A lot of the essays from John here we're looking at are kind of more in the historical realm um, and really kind of trying to patch together a appropriately, uh, considering John has a book coming out again here called the uh, my butcher it. Uh, People's History of Civilization. I'm pretty positive that's what it is. If it's not, you know, then everything I say is just not true, I guess. And you can't, you're wasting your time listening. Uh, I apologize. Or do I? I don't care. Sorry. But the book is something along those lines, and it's a collection of John's historical essays about civilization and really trying to piece things together uh, in terms of uh, not necessarily an alternative narrative of civilization but uh, we, we would consider more of a on-point understanding of history from the view of uh, those who were being fought and suppressed rather than those who were winning their temporary gains so we got the weavers got an interesting one from ian smith who's had a number of things in the past uh, he's got a blog called uncivilized animals uh, I've always really liked Ian's stuff, short, um, which I can appreciate because I am not short. Um, and just kind of different perspectives. So this one's called The One That Recorded Music's Over. Uh, and talking really about the history of recorded music as a product within civilization. Some uh, some background on union struggles in terms of work or in terms of creation of music and things like that. Uh, it's, just, it's a bit different than... A lot of the stuff that's in here, but I'm I'm pretty stoked on it. Uh, Enclosed from John Zerzan. It's a historical look at the enclosure movement. And definitely another good one. And then Feral Revisions from me, which is my take on um, kind of looking back at rewilding from a personal perspective uh, and being willing to laugh at a lot of the more ridiculous aspects and then kind of some of the messages learned and i think one of the big things is uh kind of getting over the consumerist assumptions that we carry about how the world works again going back to survivalism versus living um versus skills versus uh you know actually building community and things like that uh and really focusing as often is the case in terms of rewilding of uh, trying to replace an excessive toolkit that we carry with things that are made in a primal kind of wild environment, wild setting, or uh, things that are replicated uh, more on a... Uh, yeah, I'm really bummed on this one. Uh, things that are made and discarded, easy to replicate, uh, but really kind of focusing on a lot of that how do I build the technical kit so that I can survive? So 
the idea of rewilding being uh, a more uh, self-sustaining version or more wild version of survivalism uh, and some of the kind of roadblocks that come along the way. Reads a lot better than I just tried to describe it, but, you know, it's going to happen. So there's that. That's the essay section. Then the discussion section. We got a letter. We got a short piece from Jason Rogers, uh, who had a letter, I believe, in the last issue. Uh, Ali Bynum, I thought you'd like this post from 10 years ago. Uh, good little take on some of the insanity that comes along about Facebook and social media like that, where it's uh, trying to build some kind of nostalgia around your existence with it in a way that is extremely questionable and sketchy when looked at at any distance. Uh, everything is connected at Queequeg. Um Really good little piece talking about the microbiomes, which is something that, again, I think is going to come up a lot here, but really just uh, an important point in terms of having some kind of science behind a lot of what I say in terms of talking about uh, primal or the resistance to civilization being spiritual. Uh, and a lot of people really don't like that kind of terminology. And I can totally understand why, because I've met a lot of people who consider themselves spiritual and they're either new age, whatever, or they're uh, very reformed versions of the big monotheistic religions, the big monsters. Uh, and so, you know, you talk to them and it's like, yeah, they can use that term. I don't use it, but and if anybody's going to tell you about the issues and the limitations of language, it should be an anarcho-primitivist, so it's only appropriate that we are talking about them. But at the same time, you can have these philosophical discussions about the terms themselves forever, and it seems a lot of anarchists are want to do that, uh, and a lot of philosophers have made their entire career of it, and that's why I don't care about philosophy. If it doesn't have grounding, if it doesn't have application in the real world, couldn't give a shit. Um, so... Uh, our terms are going to be imperfect. Nature of the game just is what it is. Not too concerned with it. I will preface it, uh, as I am currently doing, uh, to talk about the, the spiritual aspects and things like that, but I don't think these things are such a unknown or such a tainted concept that we can't discuss them, because for me, uh, and what it looks like for all of our hunter-gatherer horticultural past, these are huge things. So not going to overlook them. Not going to not discuss them just because uh, somebody is going to find a problem with it. But what, what's getting at here with everything is connected and talking about the microbiome stuff is that uh, the question about where the self exists is increasingly moving from uh, ecological, biological concepts of, you know, this is my skin, this is where it is, to have to address the fact that uh, so much of our microbiome, so much of our gut bacteria and stuff like that is all passing through. It's all borrowed. It's all coming from the environment. It's shared uh, with other people, with other animals, with the world around us to the point that, you know, when you look at a human, it's easy to say, it's like, okay, I can, I can touch you, I can feel you. Um, this is where you begin, this is where you end, this is where I begin, this is where I end. And if you look at it on any kind of level beyond that, 
uh, it starts to get a lot trickier. Um, and so I, in fact, in the Fail Revisions chapter, the essay, uh, talking about uh, bacteria and um, fungi and mushrooms, uh, in particular talking about cordyceps. And the cordyceps is a really awesome mushroom that spreads through uh, insects. And so it'll propagate itself through parasitization um, to the point where it will just take over another animal and then that animal becomes the soil from which the fruiting body will grow. Uh, it's a really common kind of mushroom uh, and it's a really kind of magical thing. If you find them, you dig them up, you'll usually find uh, the insect that, that has been parasitized. Uh, and I've, I've found things before. I found like grapevines in the forest where there was just like a line through the grapevine and there's a whole bunch of cordyceps coming out along the way and you see this entire line of ants have been parasitized and the cordyceps mushrooms are growing out of each one. Um, all of that kind of shit is very, very cool to me. Uh, and uh, I've seen egos talk about it saying, you know, this is an assault on the self. But when you really get down to it and you're looking at it, it just kind of throws out the entire question of the self. Uh, so you're saying that all these things are connected, all these things are feeding off each other at any given point, any part of your body, any part of another animal's body, any part of soil is going to be pieces of yourself. Uh, so I tend to fall back quite often when I talk about anything in the spiritual sense to this phrase from the Mabuti, which is or the hunter-gatherers of uh, Congo, um, Pepina de Nadura, which is the breath of the forest. And that's basically their idea that there is a living aspect of this world. It's not a cognizant forest. It's not a god. Uh, it's, it's none of these things. It's just that there is something that connects all life. And what the microbiome stuff is saying or leaning towards is showing that there is biology here. There is like a scientific backing for something that, you know, hunter-gatherers have known forever, but never mind. Um, and it's showing that the connection between all life is more complex and more complete than we want to give it credit for. And things aren't as nice and easy as the kind of species classifications, the kind of taxonomics classifications that we've made as civilized people looking to justify our colonization of a, what we perceive to be a dead world. It's all just floating away. And this stuff is breaking apart. So even from people want to look at it and say this is all woo-woo and stuff like that or woo-woo and stuff like that. Um, you know, here's here's the science that's actually backing it up. So kind of a little fuck you. Here it is. But uh, the main thing being in terms of what I would consider spirituality isn't that there's a, a God aspect to this or anything like that. None of this civilized domesticated nonsense or anything but that the energy and the matter that floats between all living things isn't just a neutral thing. It's not just energy. It's not just matter. It, it has some kind of realness to it in and of itself. Um, so as much as I wanted to try to explain spirituality without having to try and reduce it to words or try and reduce it to something that could be conceived of as a philosophical concept without profaning my sacred by creating some kind of dogma about it which i'm not interested in doing uh and i think that one of the the great things about wildness uh one of the great things about talking about all this stuff is 
the importance of the ambiguity uh, with all of it. And these are all things that, you know, I think you can experience personally. These are all things that are available to all of us. There's nothing special about me. In fact, everything I'm, that's important to me on a sacred or spiritual level has everything to do with the fact that I am not special. None of us are special. Uh, but the entirety of this is. Uh, the uniqueness of of life at all is pretty fucking rad. It's a pretty awesome thing to be a part of it. It's only because we've been so beaten down by the domestication process and so emboldened with the sense that we have some kind of purpose and we have some kind of meaning that we stand out in a world where there's just way too many people. Um, you know, it's really this whole thing that we're, we're being sold in the whole part of the domestication process to try and convince us is like, well, you know, you're subjugating yourself to work. You're subjugating yourself to this or that, but the payoff is, you know, people are going to find you. They're going to discover how great you are. You know, you're great. You know, you're special. God done it. People like you. All this kind of shit. This entire world that we live in is built on just really isolating people so that each of us feels validated. And we feel increasingly validated by our interactions with technology, our interactions with social media. Uh, even, you know, something we'll get to here, but our interactions with digital personal assistants. So Alexa, Siri, whatever kind of crazy shit they're going to throw at you. Any one of these things that's a modification off of Microsoft Word's old paperclip animation, whatever. Stupid shit. But it's all meant to exist to reaffirm you do mean something. And that's an, a central part of the domestication process. Just saying you are special. We see and validate, value you and we validate your existence. You have meaning within us. So don't look at anything else. You get all these nasty feelings in your head. You get all these nasty thoughts in your head. Don't worry about it. We got it taken care of. We got a prescription for you. Or we got work. We got religion. We got politics. Whatever kind of bullshit thing that's going to come up in the mix of civilization or has and will. We'll throw all these other things at it. Don't you worry about it. You're special. And, of course, we're not. And then the question arises with the microbiome stuff and all these other things that are arising. What is you? Tough question, but you know it's it's always interesting to see these kind of validations. I think of in terms of science, and I think that that's a, another topic that's going to be a recurring theme. Uh, it is in my writing; it's going to continue to be. Uh, but you know, I guess we'll get back to that. So, Cliff Hayes, we got greater than. Is a short piece here. Uh, it is a solid one. I'm not going to go over. Concluding any history postscript. So that is John's postscript from the new book that I may or may not have butchered the name of. Um, the People's History of Civilization. And I'm looking for it just to see if I can get it. Yes, People's History of Civilization coming out this spring on Feral House. There you go. There is your pitch. Pertaining to the ego, Cliff Hayes. Um, Cliff is really good at these shorter pieces and really kind of articulating often what I like to consider the 
disappointed stepfather or disappointed father approach to everything. Um, but he's got a better eye for philosophy and a better stomach for it than I do. Um, so he will do things like read through Max Stirner, uh, the ego on its own and Marx's German ideology. And this is really just a couple quotes comparing Stirner with Marx and an onion article. Uh, and then just bashing it. It's really good stuff. Very stoked when Cliff is able to put things together again much faster than I do. Um, I should probably actually just read through that one, but let me think about it. All right. Uh, then we have an interview with Nora Goddess uh, called Primal Restoration. So this is um, something that we have discussed as editors often uh, and have not gotten to as much. And a big part of that is really coming back to uh, what does it mean to be a, a hunter gatherer uh, that each of us is a hunter gatherer um, psychologically, psychologically, physically, emotionally, everything. Um, and so this has been kind of a recurring theme. We haven't dealt with it directly quite as much. Uh, and I suspect that we will. And that I'm pretty positive we will get responses to this because we got responses between the editors before it even went out, as the next piece will attest to. But Nora's work is really fucking amazing. So her main book is called Primal Body, Primal Mind. Uh, I think the first version of that came out in 2009. The newest version is from 2011. Uh, and it's still available. And I can't recommend it strongly enough. And for... Somebody coming from the paleo, uh, the paleo world, you know, there's a lot of uh, hyperbole, hyperbole that gets floated around in terms of this is what kind of douchey first world people think a hunter-gatherer's diet may or may not be. And so paleo, we've seen really degrade the more popular and more available it's become to the point where you can go and buy some bar. I think there's one called Caveman, some shit or another. Uh, it's listed as paleo and brown rice syrup, things like that. Um, so really kind of falling apart. And then it doesn't help that CrossFit tends to be so prevalent with the entire paleo diet, uh, which is just, um, I don't know. It's like jockey version of MoveNet or whatever. Uh, taking basic hunter-gatherer principles in terms of fitness and exercise or what would become exercise, what their lifestyles actually would consist of, um, and then turning into a competition. Uh, so, you know, there's there's this trend throughout civilization that the closer something is to our actual being, the more aggressively marketed it, it is when it's sold back to us. Uh, and then it can take on some really stupid forms. Uh, CrossFit being one of those things. I think there's good principles, bad application, but it's huge with cops and soldiers. So, you know, that tells you a lot, but yeah, there's a lot of the paleo world. That's kind of like the pig's eyes version of what they think hunter gatherer life or die might be like. And that's led to a lot of stupid things like a lot of neocons, uh, trying to talk about, uh, some paleo perspectives what they would i'm sorry i'm air quoting can't see it trust me i'm being sarcastic uh when i say paleo context or 
whatever it is they're thinking of, that would indicate that somehow hunter-gatherers would appear to be more of a neocon or more like pro-border or anything like that. It's like, you know, these are people who haven't read a single fucking book when it comes to any of this stuff. They just read some cookbooks and then they extrapolated their own pig-friendly psychosis onto 99.999% of human history and everything about how our bodies actually function. Something I'm going to deal with more in depth later. That said, Nora is not those people. In fact, she is quite the opposite. She's got a number of certifications to back her up. Um, and a lot of what she's written is, you know, pretty much you would think that a diehard anarcho-primus had written it, and I think that it might not be much of a stretch to say so. Um, but she is definitely very strongly coming down on the consequences of civilization, not only in terms of what would be a correct uh, or historically correct kind of paleo diet, but also um, what are the consequences of civilization that a hunter-gatherer would have never had to deal with. So not just like what would a hunter-gatherer do or buy from the store, but how does a hunter-gatherer deal with being in a situation where there's Wi-Fi everywhere, where there's power lines everywhere, where there's carcinogens and everything, and our food is garbage poison. Um, so a lot of stuff about recovering from civilization, but also implicit within that, a discussion about the physical and mental consequences of living within civilization and living with modernity. And all of this is stuff that's coming from her very explicitly. It's not subtext. Um, so I'm very... Very stoked that she's been writing and she's been researching all this. Even more stoked that she contributed to number five. So to follow up her piece, I've got a piece called a short piece called the San Calorie Almanac. Uh, it's kind of basically testing the math of or doing a field test for the math that Nora puts out, which the basis of her argument is that the most important aspect of human diet um, from a prehistorical sense and in a physiological sense has to do with a predominance of dietary fat and little to no carbs or sugar. Um, so uh, saying that the optimal human diet is uh, roughly 90% based in dietary fat. So because anthropologists have provided and have nerded out and really gotten a lot of ridiculous information or what would have to their hunter-gatherer counterparts looked very ridiculous or not even counterparts hunter-gatherers are looking at looking at um, Richard B. Lee's work with the San um, and you know when you end up in that situation where you're thinking to yourself hey you know what I need to have a journal on hand an adhesive journal on hand where I can open up to page 178 and get a chart that has the percentage of diet by weight of the classes of food that the San ate. Black and Green Review number five is it. That's it. I've actually used it for that purpose before, um, which might tell you a lot about my social life. Uh, but there it is. We were kind of talking about it. We had a lot of discussion about it. And it's like, let's, let's test it out. So we went with a, a group of hunter-gatherers that lived in an area where you would think they had a much higher... Um, I don't want to put it, vegetable or uh, carbohydrate-based diet. 
and it looked like the prime it, it worked out pretty well um her numbers i think it's like 13 percent of their diet coming from uh carb heavier vegetable sources and the majority of it coming from meat and magonga nuts so also following up on that uh four-legged human has a little cooking interlude uh, called Feral Nutrition Practically Applied, how to make Indian ice cream from bear fat and other fat sources. Great stuff that we get to cover sometimes that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think you get to put into an IDCF journal, but that's why it's Black and Green Review. We get to cover all that kinds of stuff, and it's about the total picture. So, field notes from a Prime War section. We get the bonus round this time. Not only do we have a true crime case file, we have two. Uh, and I, for me, this is one of the most important sections. Um, the essay section is what takes up most of my time as a person. Um, but this is the stuff that I think is really the, the important part of the, one of the most important parts of the journal. So we are very fortunate to have time things out, even though this issue went on, it took longer for this issue to come out than we had planned. Um, the Olympia commune happened between November 17th and 29th in Olympia, Washington. So we managed to sneak that in this issue. And I am very glad we are because this is a blockade that existed, um, along a pipeline to stop the transportation of propens. Uh, the year before in 2016, uh, there was a, the Olympia stand, which was a blockade that happened on the same line, uh, in solidarity with, um, uh, the, uh, Dakota access pipe, Dakota access pipeline resistance standing rock, uh, and did not end on such a high note. It went on for seven days. A lot of people got arrested. It gathered attention. Uh, it did cost, to quote here, it did cost oil giant Halliburton two fracking operations and in turn Halliburton severed ties with the Port of Olympia. Not bad. Pretty impressive. Um, then this last year in 2017 where it came together, um, much rowdier kind of anarchist situation. And it went from the stand to a commune. There was movie showings being had. There was discussions being had. There was a communal kitchen. I wish I believe it was in the first one as well, but uh, almost more of a festive mood uh, going on and really pretty awesome stuff and a lot of hilarious stuff. The communiques that came out of it, there was a, a pretty open embracement of all these different perspectives of people that are involved in it, um, which meant that, you know, you kind of had rehashing of the anarcho-syndicalists red anarchist kind of elements coming from the green anarchist side, which seemed to be the predominant mouthpiece. Um, but you know, when they put out their demands and things like that, they were hilarious. So, uh, we'll just read a couple of them. These are the demands that they made. Uh, I'll just read the, I'll read those, but we'll see. Uh, dear city of Olympia, some of us in the Olympia commune have come to the understanding that no demands is an incoherent strategy which does not lend itself to progress or results, both words in double quotes. With this bright new understanding, we have investigated our desires and come up with some ideas about what we really want as a result of this blockade to be. Our demands are innumerable. Here are just a few. I'll just read some of these. But 
One, make the Porta Beach again. Great one. Two, blow up the sun. Obviously very seriously. Three, the, com the complete destruction of time itself. Four, break through every window. Five, a wrecking ball. Uh, this is one of my favorites. Six, that while science still exists, one of us be endowed with an adamantium lace skeleton. Um, so, yeah, you, you get these things. Number 17, just a blank spot. Number 15, the wilderness. 16, total freedom. And then the big kicker, uh, that Steve Fall, Hall fight a bear. Steve Hall being the city manager of Olympia. Uh, so, you know, I'm very glad to include that. And like I said, it's a more green anarchist leaning. Um, a lot of the stuff came out of it that was more green anarchist leaning. Very reminiscent of, you know, mid-late 2000s green anarchy uh, in terms of having a period where you had anarchist premise, you had green anarchists, you had nihilists, and you even had some people that were influenced by egoism, and a lot of people reading Venomous Butterfly stuff without taking it completely literally, as has been the case now. Um, so I was happy to see that, and it's awesome, and there was a lot of solidarity actions with it, and I hope it goes on for a very long time and becomes a trend. And also, spoiler alert, um, they managed to get a heads up uh, I think after 11 days of the commune that they were going to be raided and they just booked in the middle of the night. Cops showed up ready for war. Nobody was there. Got heckled. Fuck them. Pretty hilarious. So we don't get, we don't get many good stories in this, uh, in the Korean anarchy world. Just not the way things go. We don't, we don't get to be on the winning side in historical time very often. So, very happy that that happened the way it did, and I hope it's inspiration. So, true kind of case file. There you have it. Uh, then I got my own poisoning children. It's about um, lead and pipes and the water supply for a lot of towns, a lot of cities, and juxtaposing it with a question of where does lead come from now anyways. Big answer being uh, supposedly sustainable energy. So, a lot of lead and a lot of lead uh, repurposing happening in places like Missouri, shithole like Missouri, near where I live at uh, Doe Run uh, by Ira Rennert, uh, who also owned for quite some time a facility in Peru where they were more brutal about what they were doing in terms of lead smelting and the contamination and the impacts it had on the communities and the children. Very fucked up. So we have that. This is another one of my favorite parts of it. Uh, we got an interview with G.A. Bradshaw, who's the author of Carnivore Mines and uh, Elephants on the Edge. Uh, it's called Trauma in the Wild. And G.A. Bradshaw, I cannot speak highly enough of um, her book, Carnivore Minds, I think, was the best book of 2017, will continue to be one of the most important books written in quite a long time, and I've gotten pretty close with her. I'm very happy about that, um, and I'm very excited to see where her work's at, and I think there's few books in the history and the canons of ecological thought and biological thought, an ethology, um, and even like anarchism and eco-anarchism and things that fill in a lot of these gaps and i think paul shepherd lewis mumford being two of the, the predominant people to really kind of look at the parallels between history and uh the technology of civilization or 
um, for Shepard looking at psychology and looking at domestication and being able to really apply a lot of principles from one to looking at the other and being able to take these critiques in some of the most important directions. And so uh, Gia got her start or looking at elephants on the edge. It was looking at uh, post-traumatic stress disorder on elephants. Um, and uh, she'd actually gone out into South Africa um, at the end of the apartheid or at the end of apartheid. And they had, you know, warfare had devastated the continent as it has everywhere, um, particularly bad there. And so there was this creation to try and get money of propping up ecotourism. Um, that's led to a lot of big issues, some of which I actually get into in the essay Gathered Remains, some I get into elsewhere, much more to be gotten into other places, and other people have done a very good job of digging into a lot of that. Um, but one aspect of it was was to prop up ecotourism, was to try and get some of these iconic African animals into these parks and to areas that were large but they were still fenced um and the fences being a huge issue we're talking about uh south africa in a place that has you know it, it can be very arid um so the importance of migration is is absolutely essential um and there's actually uh, mob grazers or uh, people raising rotational grass-fed beef and things like that that have looked at uh, the ecology of South Africa and how areas like this and prairies and plains and things like that require the mass movement and constant movement of large animals in large numbers across them to eat, stomp, and shit as they keep the ground covered there year-round and to ensure that the soil is strong enough and the plants are strong enough that they can withhold while there's going to be times where there's a lot of rain and times where there's none, times where there's flooding, times where there's none, things that, of course, we're going to be seeing a lot more of and we are seeing a lot more of as civilization stumbles along. Um, so when these fences are put up um, by colonizers, by, you know, the these governments that have been up and down throughout the history of Africa, as has been the case elsewhere, these large migratory paths have been cut off and then a lot of these animals just get to these points where there's they should be able to just get through them and they can't because of the fences and they'll die um conversely when you try and create tourist parks and things like that and you put up a fence and you try and stick a lot of these animals in them uh you know same same principles they can die they often do uh so uh when they tried to fill these parks back up they had captured a lot of these iconic animals and then just tried to dump them into the park thinking these are animals whatever they'll just work anywhere they'll just do whatever and things will work out fine uh obviously that didn't happen um and the the impacts of capture the impacts of capture for you know scientific purposes for uh collaring animals just to try and document them um this is something that, that Gay and uh, a number of other people have gotten into in terms of saying it's like these aren't nothing things. I mean, they're not. These animals are aware about what's going on. They do know when they've been collared. There are impacts of being collared. There are impacts of being randomly shot with a dart and sedated uh, and then handled by humans and weighed and everything. Uh, so even, you know, when the intentions are supposed to be good, these things are, are awful. Um, 
And so her work has really gotten down to, you know, looking into a situation like this where she went out to understand what was happening to these lines, these lines that were making it, uh, and got her attention drawn towards uh, elephants, that same kind of situation, a lot of, which is a common theme. Um, most elephants that do exist in this world have seen their families taken out by poachers and just having their faces mangled um, and having the matriarchs of the clans killed off uh, in just insane numbers and droves for something as pathetic as the ivory trade. Um, and these things have massive consequences on these animals. I mean, these are, uh, their lifespan isn't all that different from ours. Uh, and they do suffer trauma. So, uh, these elephants, a group of these elephants had come through and they had just went nuts. They went on a killing spree and they killed a bunch of white and black rhinos. Um, and so when she went out to look at the lions, she saw this, uh, and that caught her attention. She ended up writing this book, Elephants on the Edge, understanding the trauma and the PTSD that was prevalent amongst elephants. Um, you know, of course, extrapolating things between human impacts um, impacts on humans and humans impacts on other animals and other life and you know really taking a giant leap for ethology which is a study of animals and personalities and things like that uh that a lot of scientists have been kind of stemming along and ethology is i think something that's very um important and at a very good place in terms of its generally slow development but where it's at now in terms of a lot of books coming out that reduce a lot of these lines that we have between us like well this is how one animal works this is how another animal works we humans see things different and getting past this insane Descartes uh, kind of dualism that we had where the world is dead because they lack souls or whatever religious shit we made up um and saying like no they, they we're social animals these are social animals we we don't have to sit here and guess um how they're reacting to these things if they're obviously showing signs of distress they're obviously acting out of character this is what happens like this is what happens to humans this is what happens to these animals so elephants on the edge is a really important book and then carnivore minds is a really important book uh, in terms of taking uh, a look at uh, carnivores or obligate carnivores um, and really kind of casting off some of the the negative connotations that we've created around the idea of predators being uh, soulless killers um, and looking at their lives and really understanding, you know, everything from uh, rattlesnakes and orcas and great white sharks, uh, crocodiles and alligators to just, you know, the kind of terror that exists among rattlesnakes at these um, insane events that happen pretty much anywhere where rattlesnakes are, uh, the roundups where they're just taking hundreds of thousands of rattlesnakes at a time, throwing them in a cage, and then they're just fucking killing them in these really grandiose, morbid spectacles um, that are vile. Uh, but there's there's a lot about these animals we can relate to, and I mean, it shouldn't have to be the case that we do for us to respect them, but it tends to be the case that we need to have the obvious told back to us just so we can understand how far our impacts really are. Uh, so that interview, uh, Trauma in the Wild, is great. And uh, it's really kind of touching on a lot of things that are in those books, as Carnivore Minds and Elephants on the Edge. And then 
I, I can't recommend it enough. I think it's really important. And of course, it goes both ways. Understanding what we're doing to the world and what we're doing to ourselves in the process. Sometimes it's just the sad truth that you need a mirror. Uh, so following that up with another great interview with uh, Klee Benali. Um, and Klee is no stranger to the anarchist world. He's an anarchist himself. Um, he's also a DNA artist, filmmaker, musician, and resistor. Uh, he's He does the Indigenous Action Network. Um, but this interview is about the Halno campaign and uh, Canyon Uranium Mine in the Grand Canyon, the southern tip of the Grand Canyon. Um, we're talking about uh, mining uranium on sacred land. Uh, just beyond insane. If you want to find a juxtaposition of the insanity of civilization and this kind of constant question about how did this get this far? Why did this get this far? You take people that lived in a you know much more sustainable way um, in these areas for thousands of years and having, if not tens or hundreds of thousands of years, uh, and having this very sacred relationship to this, to this place and to this entirety and this community of life, and then just, just civilized fuckers going in and, and mining uranium uh, for nuclear power, nuclear weapons. Yeah, um, that's a that's a whole wormhole there. It's a whole rabbit hole of just complete insanity and um, true insanity of living in a world where once again we have a very real threat of nuclear war, and it's uh it's happening over Twitter. So uh, that's fucked up. Anyways, that uranium comes from somewhere, and that somewhere is sacred land. Um, so to, to go again, back to back with that is the second true crimes case file, Evan Meckham, Eco-Terrorist International Conspiracy, a medic. So medic was a group of um, eco-saboteurs that existed in Arizona from 1987 to 1988, uh, did a handful of actions um, at the, there was the Canyon Mine site, the Uranium Mine, and then also another subject of the uh some of the activism that Cleve's involved in right now, which is at um, the Snowbowl Ski Resort, which is on sacred lands of, um, and then of course the the current campaign against them has a lot to do with just spitting on spitting in the face of not only taking these sacred lands but the the fake snow that's being put on it for yuppies to come in um, and have a great time is treated septic water so literally civilization pissing on sacred lands has been going on for a very long time and in the 80s uh it's good to know that there's a group of people that were motivated enough to take some uh blow torches to uh ski poles always interesting historical and educational information showing that some people say fuck your laws this is what we're going to do. Um, so it's good to know. Uh, so ending up that section with my thanks for hacking, um, which is actually online already. Uh, it's under my peak sieve column that's on it's going down. Um, just talking about really kind of reflecting on some of the insanity 
that's come up about this entire fake news thing and talking about hacking the election and really just ridiculing what do you think was going to happen when you created a situation where your entire society was online and influenced by something as stupid as fake news posts on social media. Um, so uh, it's a stupid way to go. Um, if you're looking for some in-depth analysis of the current Russia hacking scheme, there it is. It's really fucking stupid. Getting to that point, it's really fucking stupid. That's where we are. We're supposed to end on a high note. The civilization is not. So there we have it. Uh, and the review section, got some really awesome books reviewed. I reviewed Coyote America, which is 2016, so it's not having to compete with my statement that Cardboard Minds is the best book of 2017, because it came out then. It was a really good book. Dan Flores wrote it. They, uh, I'll just give a shout out there, because the, um, I believe it's called War on Wildness chapter, was fucking great. Straight up Paul Shepard in a lot of ways. Uh, then I write a lengthy review that's comparing friends to walls. Are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? Which is, meh. Uh, has good points and has really bad marks against it. And then Beyond Words from Carl Safina, which is really excellent. And really like Carl's work. Um, quick review of Sam Thayer's Incredible Wild Edibles. A great write-up from Cliff uh, called Ever Present, Life with Digital Assistance. Um, we have it in the review section because the original concept was us doing a review of Amazon Echo, which this kind of is, although clearly none of us were going to actually buy one and try it, but Cliff, as only Cliff can, really dissected the entire thing and the role that where the whole digital assistance things come from and where it's going. Um, it's really good i'm gonna tell you to read it i'm not gonna read from it so that's good and then a very lengthy review um kind of an essay that is responding primarily to a book and that book is called tubes uh from andrew blum it was a 20 000, or 2012 book called tubes a journey to the center of the internet um and it's really talking about the physical infrastructure behind civilization or behind sorry behind the internet and how it all works um i'm a pretty big fan of storyteller's work uh and i think that the review kind of is similar to this essay review in number three built around ted koppel's lights out was something that was great and one of the reasons i think number three is a, a great issue um but uh really kind of taking it apart and going down a lot of different elements about it and the the consequences of view the religious kind of perspective we have of technology as something that exists within the cloud and you know of course there's a lot of religious iconography involved in all that uh and at the same time the very real reality that every single aspect of that cloud is tethered to real life and is subject like all things to destruction so that's my recap of number five. Um, so there we have it. And I strongly encourage reading it. Maybe down the line I will read more from it. But that's where it's at. So um, 
Alright. So a little bit more about this podcast and black and green projects. My idea is to kind of do this hopefully once a week, every two weeks, something like that. I don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, I'm horrible with deadlines. Uh, I would like to start having other people on it at some point. Most likely that's going to be people who come through my land here in the Ozarks. Um, so not nearly as many as you're going to get on the coast or anything like that, but it is going to happen. I think we're actually going to have Cliff out here pretty soon. So, uh, always great when he's on John's show. I don't see why it'd be different, uh, with this podcast should it take off. Um, but we will see. Uh, and I'm interested in keeping more discussion up about some of the projects and some of my own work. Uh, probably more chatty about it than usual, mostly because I'm doing a fucking lot of it right now. Uh, so I should say that we did bump black and green review to an annual publication. And I think that I have the date, the deadline for number six. Um, where is it? Tentative deadline, September 1st, 2018. Don't wait till last minute. We go through a lot. Um, we put everybody who's on our editorial board, everybody involved with the journal, everybody we know, nobody gets a free pass. John doesn't get one. I don't get one. Sometimes we have to argue our pieces through. Uh, sometimes we have to go back and make a lot of revisions. We want, because of the format and because this isn't just a magazine, uh, this is something we want to be able to stand the test of time. We put a lot of work and effort into it. We expect people who are writing to it to do the same. That said, uh, the discussion section is going to be, or is always going to be a little more open-ended and have a little more room to not be an essay, not to have to present an entire idea, but kind of present something. But it doesn't mean because you have some stupid idea you just thought of that we're going to print an email to you that you send us in the middle of the night when you're having that thought we're going to, if it's a crazy idea, we're going to ask you to validate or back it up. Um, whether we agree with it or not, we might print it, just respond to it. Um, but you know, that's meant that we get some people every now and then are just saying this is bullshit. This isn't high school, whatever. And of course it isn't, it's real life, but if you can't be bothered to present your idea in a way that other people would be able to read and understand it, then it's not worth our time. It's not worth their time. It costs a lot of money to print books right now. It costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time to distribute them. I don't want to waste page count on your whimsical idea. So I encourage people to write. There is no limitation as far as saying it needs to agree with us or something like that. Whatever. If as long as it's a good coherent idea, present it to us, um, talk to us. And, you know, I get emails fairly often saying I'm working on this thing. It's going to be this many words. Do you approve it? We don't approve anything without seeing it and without going through it and without it going through the editorial process. So on the black and green review website, there's some more information about that and about submissions and submission guidelines. But the main thing that I want to nail in here, which I'm kind of going off point off topic here is that the tentative deadline is September 1st. The idea being that we'll do it as an annual publication. Um, 
this issue being 290 pages costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to mail. costs a lot of money to make. Um, it's better for the journal in the long run that we do more smaller issues and things like that than just one big one a year, especially if it continues to grow the way that it has. So that being said, if we have content ready to go for number six um, earlier than September 1st, we're going to run it. So if you have ideas, if you've got things that you want to put to us, things you want to talk to us about, something you want to get a discussion going with the editors and things like that, just email us, let us know, or write us. Um, whatever it is you do, communicate with people, uh, try it out. Send us a smoke signal. Just don't write us over Facebook because fuck that thing. Um, so, yeah. Uh, if you have ideas, you have things, just because you see a deadline for much later this year, don't sit on it. Don't wait. Give us some time to digest it. Give us some time to respond. And then when it's ready to go, it'll be ready to go. Uh, I think that we will see a lot. There's a good chance it could come out earlier just because um, a lot of stuff for number five was pulling teeth. I think a lot of people spent 2017 and 2016 in a state of disbelief and kind of uh, disaster fatigue uh, is exhausting. Just was exhausting. So I had a lot of people ask me um, mid last year what the deadline was for number six. So we'll see what comes of that and uh, hopefully it'll be good. But um, the best way to find out about what's going on with black and green besides listening to this, and I'll try to keep it updated as possible uh is to go to the black and green mailing list and you can get on that from black and green press black and green review all those sites have a link on there i don't send out a lot of emails but try to make the most of them when i do so that stuff's up there um i'm gonna give a quick shout out to anything can happen uh the freddie perlman anthology from uh the original one was 91 that i put out and uh lorraine uh, Freddie's widow and I spent a long time working on that and really trying to find a lot of things that are making a lot of corrections and hopefully presenting it in the best way possible. Uh, some of the essays in it, uh, continuing appeal of nationalism, progress in nuclear power, Beirut and the anti-Semitism pogrom are crucial essays. And if you have not read them, I cannot encourage them strongly enough. The unfortunate state of the world is that they're going to continue to be more relevant, more relevant daily. Um, which is crazy because some of those essays go back to the 60s, but all were written before Freddie died in 1985. I could be wrong about that. Um, but, well, I wasn't wrong about the fact that he wrote them before he died. That is true. But, uh, yeah, so there's that. Uh, it's great. Again, on blackandgreenview.org. If anybody's listening and they're interested in helping distribute uh, books, tabling, or anything like that, I've done small distros for a long time. I try to make it very simple. Anything over five bucks for a distributor or a tabler or info shop, uh, straight up 50% off. Um, and you can write through the website. You can write black and green, uh, press at gmail.com uh, and just ask for getting a wholesale account set up. Um, internationally, we are distributed in the UK and I guess the EU by active distribution. Um they try to keep up. We've gotten a lot of requests from the UK. We get a lot of requests from Canada, um, Australia, and various other places through Europe in particular, and some of South America. Uh, 
it's getting insanely expensive to mail books and especially the larger books that we're doing get more and more costly. So I'm always more interested in mailing more books to somebody who is willing to help distribute them than a single book. Um, just for reference, like a single issue of number five can cost anywhere from 13 to $23 in postage to ship internationally. And for most places in the world, I could ship a dozen copies priority, which means it'll get there in about seven to 10 days for like 60 bucks or something like that. So, uh, makes a lot more sense for me to do that. So I'm willing to work with people who want to help with international distribution to put more copies in their hands at cost. Um, just so, you know, I don't have to keep dropping a ton of money on shipping every single time and we can all make the most of what limited resources we have. Uh, speaking of limited resources, black and green has gotten where it is because of massive donations and small donations and any amount of help. Uh, spreading the word is increasingly becoming crucial because uh, bait and switch with social media and social networking. Um, that's just how people get their information, and it's not really a way we're interested in putting any if any energy um, into. So they're also increasingly becoming harder to get the word across. Um, and I look forward to the day we just stop using any of it at all, but. In the meantime, uh, it's the mailing list, things like that. Uh, you know, reach out to us, get involved, and then if you can help, if you can donate, that is always a massive help. We, we run very minimal cost uh, on any of it. And it, frankly, if we were to make a profit off anything black and green, which to date has never happened, uh, it's based on the idea that we just sell a ton of copies very quickly. And that's how we pay for the next thing. So we're never getting interest. And then uh, theoretically, you know, that wouldn't include things like paying for the websites, paying for PO boxes and paying for all kinds of administrative bullshit that we have to do. Um, but all that stuff's there. So as a business, black and green is not a good one. As an anarchist project, I think it's a pretty solid one. Been doing it since 2000. Um, and we're going to increasingly have a lot more. That said, 2018 is a big year for black and green. Uh, I'm talking with a couple other people about books that they're working on. I've got other ideas for books that I would like to see anthologies of other writing and things like that. Um, some of these longer running ideas that we've had that I haven't put out there. I think we might hopefully see more of them. Uh, if I didn't just bankrupt everything by running a 290 page book and 344 page book back to back. Um, so, you know, if you're into it, buy the books, donate if you can, when we do shirts and stuff like that, it goes up. That's, uh, that's how this moves forward. Um, but that said, uh, some of the projects I am going to talk about, I'm currently writing a book right now called Of Gods and Country, uh, The Domestication of Our World, and really it's the origins of religion, uh, nationalism, through kind of a, the origins of a tribal identity uh, into the origins of the state uh, and patriarchy juxtaposed against um, missionary contact and missionary conquest. So uh, there's been a lot of really good books written about religion. There's been a lot of really good books written about the consequence of contact. Uh, 
this book is meant to fill in uh, the steps to where these ideas come from, where the organization that was necessary for them uh, came to be, or how it came from, or sorry, where it came from, and what it looked like, and then juxtaposing that with the insanity of the often unquestioned and often, uh, I don't know how you would even put it. I guess the, the liberal bullshit that kind of says that missionary contact wasn't as consequential as, you know, loggers and miners, which is not true. They often work hand in hand. And of course, ethnocide uh, is part and parcel with uh, ecocide and part and parcel with the colonization and conquest of existing societies. And it's crazy history. Uh, I'm sure everybody's seen parts of it. Um, but it's one of those things where, as I've done the reading for it and as I've done more and I'm constantly looking for more, which is one of the reasons I'm talking about this so much, uh, missionaries spend a lot of money um, suppressing anything that questions them. And it's, it's kind of crazy how openly they act and even talking about the big two, which would be Summer Institute of Linguistics slash Wycliffe Bible Translators, uh, insidious motherfuckers, and New Tribes Mission, which is now Ethnos 360. Um, just seeing how straight up they operate and how much their, you know, New Tribes Mission has made it their goal to contact every tribe, but I think it was like 2026 or something, maybe 2020. Um, they get massive funding, and these people have independent chapters. Uh, they've often been the puppets of uh, the oil industry and loggers and things like that, uh, and generally used as a weapon for state and nation building uh, at the frontier. Uh, so there's a lot of crazy history there, but they're you know these groups just have web pages that are absolutely lacking any kind of self-awareness and they have a lot of information a lot of locations just listed on their webpage and they can clearly um act as though they are undisputed and the reason is is because much like the catholic church much like all these institutions religious institutions they pretty much do nobody's challenging them not not in a direct way nobody's even when people are saying the ideologies or the religions or anything behind them are fucked up they're generally still thinking that these are people who mean well, which is crazy. Um, that historically is not the case. Contemporarily is not the case. And blind illusion, uh, it doesn't matter how good your intention is. If you're involved or you're an agent of ethnocide, you're a piece of shit. So uh, we're going to have a lot more coming along down the line in terms of really going after missionaries and really not letting that continue to fly under the radar. But um, I think a lot of people have their own stories that relate to that or their own research that they, they've done. Uh, and if there's things that you think I should check out, by all means, I would like to talk about them and hear about them. Uh, so you can email blackandgreenpress at gmail.com. Uh, if you have questions or comments or anything like that about things you'd like me to cover, things that you'd like to be discussed, use that site, or use that address as well. Uh, we do have a P.O. Box. It's P.O. Box 402 Salem, Missouri, 65560. Uh, you just label it to black and green. And again, that's P.O. Box 402 Salem, Missouri, 65560. If you don't want to deal with technology, understandably, um, get in touch. 
let me know. Uh, and I, of course, always happy to discuss things and always hoping that uh, this matters and people have still listened. And if you have uh, an hour and 20 minutes into it, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I will see you on the next one. Thank you.